Okay. Good afternoon. Um, so my wife and I recently, you know, my wife came to the United States when she was in graduate school. So only about 10 years ago. Uh, so one of the things that we like to do on our downtime um, is that she likes to show me movies. She came from China. So she likes to show me movies that she grew up with in China. And of course, I like to show her movies that I grew up with from the United States. So things like Star Wars, Back to the Future. Um, recently, we started watching Indiana Jones, the first one, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Of course, if you know that movie, uh, it's about uh, Indiana Jones and his friends searching for the Ark of the Covenant, which is lost. Uh, and still today, we don't know where it is exactly. In the movie, in the beginning of the movie, I don't know if you remember this, uh, they, the government sends two agents to Indy and his friend in, at the university, and they start to talk about the Ark of the Covenant, where, you know, each time the Israelites brought the Ark into a battle, according to the movie, lightning would shoot out and, and you know, they would win uh, the battle. Which got me and my wife into an interesting discussion. Well, of course, we know that the Bible does not describe lightning coming out of the ark. Um, but it did, it did bring up an interesting discussion. Was the ark, in the Bible, was the ark really a good thing or not such a good thing? You know, of course... Uh, Yes, there are many stories in the Bible of the Israelites bringing the ark into battle and winning. In fact, there is one very famous story of them bringing the ark to a city and there was no battle and they won, right? They marched the ark around the walls of Jericho many times. And at the end of it, God brought down the walls of Jericho and they won that battle. And there was not even, you know, they didn't even have to put a siege to, to, the, to the city. But a lot of the other stories that we know about the Ark aren't so great. Uh, we know the story of how Eli's two sons tried to take the Ark into battle against the Philistines, and they lost. The Israelites lost. We know the story of how the Philistines brought the Ark into their temple, thinking that, okay, well, this might be a good luck charm, and got sent plagues. Uh, onto that city. And that's right, the, 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 the main Philistine. Right, yeah, uh, the entire statue fell out, okay. fell off, and kind of laid in front of the ark, kind of like it was, it was bowing to the ark. Uh -huh. um, and then, of course, we have even that story of David, King David, bringing the ark on a cart, uh -huh. and the ark tipping over, the cart tipping over, and someone. Touched it, died. touched it to, to help the ark to, to steady it, touched it and died. So was the ark really a good thing or a bad thing? Of course, we then after that incident of the guy touching the ark and dying, you have the story of the ark being brought to someone's house. And yes, and that family being blessed by God for an entire year. 
we came to the conclusion that the ark was a good thing. However, used wrongly many times in the hands of sinners. That is exactly the point today of God's law, of how God's law is a good thing, but very often used unlawfully, used wrongly, especially in the hands of sinners. Uh, that is the main point of today's text. We're just going to talk about today's text in three uh, topics. First, we're going to talk about the unlawful use of the law. What does that mean? How were people unlawfully using God's law? Then we're going to talk about the lawful use of the law. And then we're going to examine ourselves. How are we using the law? So first, let's talk about the unlawful use of the law. We've been going through, uh, well, not we've been going through, but we just started going through uh, the book of First Timothy. Um, and in the verses that we read today, the very first verse, verse 8, Paul reminds Timothy that we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. When he says that, he has in mind the fact that there are people in the Ephesian church, who are using the law unlawfully. Uh, if you have your Bibles, just turn back and look at some of the previous verses. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. This is what Paul writes. Now the purpose of the command is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. We covered this passage the last time we were here, and we talked about a couple of things. We talked about how in this letter of 1 Timothy, Paul is giving Timothy, his disciple, charges, uh, commands, and these are commands to be taken seriously, charges to be taken Seriously, he's not getting around. They're not options. These are charges. Now, in verse 5, which we just read, Paul describes the purpose of charging Timothy like this. The purpose of the command. That word commandment is the same word as a charge. The purpose of me charging you like this is so that it produces in this church love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. So really, in 1 Timothy, the beginning part of 1 Timothy, Paul gives to Timothy the reason why he's charging him like this. And there's really two things in there. Timothy is to protect good doctrine in the church and protect it so that it produces love in the church. That's the purpose of the charge. Now, verses 6 to 7, which we just read, tells us why this was necessary in Ephesus. Uh, we mentioned the last time we were here how throughout the book of 1 Timothy, Paul uses various words to describe false teachings. And we described how Paul wasn't just focused on one type of false teaching or one heresy in Ephesus. Apparently, there were many different types of heresies going on in Ephesus, and Paul touches upon 
many of them throughout First and Second Timothy. But the first heresy, or the first false teaching he tackles, are in verses 6 to 7. These, quote-unquote, idle talkers who desire to be teachers of the law, but they don't understand what they say, nor the things which they affirm. So the first type of false teaching, or the first type of false teacher that Paul directs Timothy to, you know, you need to charge them to teach only good, doc good doctrine, are these supposed teachers of the law. Now, what is meant by this, um, by this charge? What does Paul mean when he says these supposed teachers of the law who don't understand what they say and don't understand even the things which they affirm? Well, uh, for that, one of the places we can turn is in Acts. Uh, this is Acts 15. Acts 15 describes the near end of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, where uh, after going through uh, what is modern-day Turkey, they arrive back at Antioch, and it says that Paul and Barnabas spent a whole year in Antioch, and many believers, many, many people became believers, many of whom who were Gentiles became believers, in that church in Antioch, and it also says that it was first in Antioch that those believers of Christ became known as Christians, little Christs, okay? And then the next chapter, Acts 15, describes this, happening in the church in Antioch where there were many Gentiles. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren in Antioch, saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul, meaning the church in Antioch, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question, to try to settle this question, Acts 15. Of course, if you know your Bible, Acts 15 is, is that great Jerusalem council where the elders and apostles do debate this issue. Do the Gentiles need to obey Mosaic law in order to be saved? In other words, is salvation by faith alone in Christ alone? Or is it salvation by faith plus obedience to a certain percentage or a certain number of Mosaic laws? And if there is a certain percentage and number, how much? Right, and Acts fifteen is the the the, the famous place in uh, in Scripture where we have that first council where the apostles and elders come down on the side of salvation by faith alone. Um, but the fact was that in this Gentile church, in this church where these new believers they did not have the Mosaic law, there were teachers of the law who who came in who told them, well, you're, it's not enough just to have faith in Christ. You have to do the law in order to be saved. You have to um, have faith and obedience to the law and some kind of combination of the two 
in order to be in order to be saved. And it says in Acts 15 that you know, this was a church that sent out Paul and Barnabas. If you if you remember at the beginning of the first missionary journey, the church in Antioch was the one that commissioned Paul and Barnabas to go and do that missionary journey. This was the church that they came back to and spent a year with. This was the church where they were first called Little Christs. So this was a precious church. And Paul and Barnabas were their dear brothers, pastors. And yet it says in Acts 15 that these teachers of the law caused so much dissension and dispute with that church that they didn't believe Paul and Barnabas. They said, that's not enough. You guys go with these teachers of the law to Jerusalem and have Jerusalem settle this question for us. Okay, so, so that was how much of an impact these teachers of the law had for that church. Of course, Paul also addresses these false teachers in Galatians, which I'm glad we, we read today in, um, in our uh, confession of sin. Uh, Galatians 3. Remember this famous passage. Uh, when Paul writes to the church in Galatia, Galatians 3, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Here, Paul isn't going against. He's not writing against those teachers of the law. He's not writing a letter to them, rebuking them. He's rebuking the Galatians who were tricked by the false teachers into believing that they had to obey the Mosaic Law were parts of the Mosaic Law before they could be saved. And we know the writing style of Paul. Right? Whenever Paul gets into these rhetorical questions, he's really fired up. <laughs> right? Uh, whenever Paul uh, gets into these questions that he doesn't answer, uh, he, he's making a point. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit... By faith, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? The unlawful use of the law means this, is to require the law as a requirement for salvation. Or, uh, in other words, to set up additional hurdles to salvation by faith alone. It's to basically say salvation is not by faith alone, it's by faith plus something else, plus some requirement of the law. You know, oftentimes we think that these teachers of the law who unlawfully use the law, oftentimes we think these are, you know, scoundrels and charlatans that, that are easily detectable. Not so. You know, somehow... Sometimes we think these teachers, false teachers of the law, are easily detectable and easily dispelled in church. Of course we don't believe that stuff. And of course we're not going to let it in church. And of course we believe salvation is by faith alone. Well, 
If this were the case, if this was such an easy heresy to dispel, Paul would not need to charge Timothy in this way. If this was such an easy heresy to dispel, the church in Antioch would not send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to say, you consult with the council. And the Galatians would need to have a tongue lashing by Paul. You know, when I was in seminary, when I was in seminary, uh, there were two classes called Doctrine of Salvation. Doctrine of Salvation Part 1 and Doctrine of Salvation Part 2. Doctrine of Salvation Part 1 covered how salvation was accomplished by Christ. Okay, that part of it was just basically straightforward, okay? Doctrine of Salvation 2 talked about the order of salvation, how salvation applied to us, and how what are the benefits, and, and how do we you know, uh, experience the benefits. And it was in Doctrine of Salvation 2 when we started to talk about when we started to talk about Romans chapter 2 that something weird and strange happened. You know, just for, for your reference, Romans 2 is in that first part of Romans where Paul is making a he's prosecuting the entire human race and saying all of us are guilty. There is and, and he comes to a client a conclusion in Romans 3, where he says, There is no one righteous. No, no, not one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned aside. All have become worthless in the sight of God. Because all of us, Jew and Gentile, have broken God's law. And we are all guilty of it. So, so Romans 1 through 3 is, is where Paul makes his case against humanity and says, Okay, there's God's law. And we're all sinners <laughs> and we've all broken it and we're all guilty and we need salvation apart from the law. Okay. But Romans two is where Paul writes this thing where, um, he's, he basically says, hypothetically, if one wanted to be justified by the law, one would have to obey and do the law. Um, but it was in this seminary class where we were taught that Romans two, uh, didn't really teach that. Romans 2 really taught that there was a final salvation at the last day where we would be justified by faith and by works that accorded with faith. That's the phrase that the seminary used, accorded with faith. We would be saved by faith and works that accorded with that faith. And that, and that was what seminary taught me was what Romans 2 meant. Um, it took me a while to unravel that. I mean, I even had to uh, uh, go through a final exam where I had to explain how they got to that conclusion, you know, through their interpretation of Romans 2. I had to explain their interpretation of Romans 2 on a final exam. Uh, and it took me a while to unravel that in my brain. What is what do they mean? Salvation by faith and works that accord with with faith. Well, I think what they really mean is that they are saying there is a type of salvation where it's faith plus works, where it's faith plus works. And unfortunately, the professor that taught that. Uh, he is a very revered professor, and uh, even to this day, 
He is very, very weird. You know who I'm talking about. And you know who I'm talking about. Teachers of the law who use the law unlawfully. That's what we're talking about. Someone like that. That's the unlawful use of the law. Let's talk about the lawful use of the law. Um, I'll read again verses 9 to 10. 1 Timothy 1 verses 9 to 10. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. One of the great insights of Martin Luther during the Reformation was when he formulated the three uses of the law. Okay, the three uses of the law. Um, and we're only going to cover one of the uses of the law. Okay. Um, Martin Luther said, the God's law, three lawful uses of the law, first is as a curb in general to human behavior. Okay, even if you did not know God's law, there is some common grace out there where God's law restrains human behavior where we are not as evil as we could possibly be. That's the first use. The second use of the law is as a mirror to show us who we really are in front of God. To show us who we really are as sinners and as depraved beings before a holy God. And third is as a guide for Christians, as, as a guide to life, how we ought to live our life um, for those who are in Christ. Okay. If you look in your bulletin, I'm glad, Mark, uh, that you put this in your bulletin. When you look at your bulletin uh, at the place where it says large Westminster Larger Catechism, question 97, what special use is there of the moral law to the regenerate? That is basically talking about that third use of the law as a guide for those who are in Christ. Okay, and you can read through that uh, on your own time. But to, today, in our text, we are talking about that second use of the law. That legitimate use of the law. One of the legitimate ways that the law should be used is as a mirror to show us who we really are in front of God. That is what the verses that we just read, that's what they mean. That the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane. That's us. The law shows us who we are in front of a holy God. But now some of us might say, but that list is so harsh. Right? The words begin okay. Right? Okay. Lawless and insubordinate. Okay. God, ungodly and for sinners. Okay. Yeah, I am that. Unholy and profane. Sure. But then it, it goes down a slope into the pits. Murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers. Manslayers. Fornicators. Sodomites. Now that word is interesting. Uh, that word in Greek is literally two words uh, combined together. It's the word for a male. Uh, it's actually the, the word for when a male gets aroused. 
and bed. Okay? So literally that word is to bed a male. Kidnappers, perjurers, though those are harsh, harsh, harsh words. You know, I my mother and father are still here. Right? It was just my mom's birthday. She's 68 this past Thursday. And I drove to Philadelphia and celebrated, bought her pie, a cherry cheesecake pie that she loves, right? And celebrated. But murders of mothers? You know, here we need to recall the words of Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, which we read, right? Matthew 5, where basically Jesus says, it's not just the actions, but it's what's in your heart. And if your heart desires something or thinks about something or your eyes desire something and thinks about something, it's as bad as doing the act, right? Matthew 5, 22. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Matthew 5, 28. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5, 28. If you look at someone with lust, you've committed that act. 5.22, if you hate someone in your heart, or if you're angry with somebody in your heart, even without committing that act of murder, you've murdered them. You are in danger of the judgment. You know, Jesus' teaching here uh, convicts all of us. It really throws a wrench in, um, I was thinking this week, it really throws a wrench that what Jesus teaches in Matthew 5 and what Paul says here with that word sodomite, right? That sin of wanting to bed a male. Uh, and what Jesus says about not just the physical act of that, but the desire for that. Just desiring that is a sin. Uh, that, that really throws a wrench in everything that Revoice is about. Everything. It just goes out the window. You can't argue against these words. Um, there's actually, on the way here, I was reminded in the PCA, there is a pastor who's all into this intimate friendship thing. He, he, he's a gay Christian and he promotes, you know, he, he, he says he's never done the act, but he lives with a male, straight friend and he considers them a family a household um and the way he describes it it's more than just having a male roommate uh basically he says whenever wherever this person moves he needs to talk to me first we need to have a family discussion first before you know he's able to move you know we need to decide things you know as a normal family kind of like a husband and a wife except they're not husband and wife Okay, uh, I remember listening, listening to a podcast of his where he actually says, uh, I don't know where, if he's joking, uh, he says, well, you know, there are some times that when he comes home, I'll look at him and, and I'll sort of tease him about how attractive he is. And, and, you know, that's a desire. That's a sodomite desire. And that's a sin. The law was made for us, sinners, 
you know, in, it's good that, Mark, you read through the Ten Commandments. Look at these descriptors. Murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, manslayers, fornicators, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers. Think about the Ten Commandments. That really fits with the Ten Commandments, don't it? Doesn't it? Thou shalt honor your father and mother. And if you don't, you're a murderer of fathers and mothers. Thou shalt not kill. If you don't, right, you're a manslayer, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery, fornicate. Thou shalt not covet. What do you do when you covet? You kidnap, right? Thou shalt not bear false witness, perjure, lie. Right, Paul is going through the, the categories of the Ten Commandments here. And so, yeah, even though the words are harsh, friends, when that mirror of God's word is in front of us, the picture that we get back is a harsh picture. It's not nice when we are standing in front of holy God and his law is in front of us. It's harsh in God's sight, right? That's the key. In God's sight, that's harsh. But that's the reality. Let me use a human example, okay? We're talking about the law is made for the unlawful. Or the, the law is made for the sinners. It's not made for righteous people. It's made for sinners and lawless people. Uh, let me ask you a couple questions about American law or Pennsylvania law. Okay, just easy questions. Do you know what the difference is between secured bail and unsecured bail? Anyone? Do you know what is a rule 600? Anyone? Do you know what types of arguments your attorney can make in a formal arraignment? Do you know what is a Nebia hearing? Well, I mean, these are all parts of American law. But the reason why you didn't know the answer to any of these is because you are, in human terms, law-abiding people. The law, those laws, are not made for you. Now, you might think, well, that's kind of... Those, those are kind of minutia, like complicated questions. Maybe a hearing, Rule 600, only lawyers would know that. So if you'd have to go to law school, no, no, no. It's not just lawyers who know this stuff. I work in the public defender's office, and part of my job was is to to interview people who are in prison guess who else knows this very well repeat offenders okay repeat offenders in prison who have no law degree uh who might even those who are barely literate even those who are homeless who've got mental issues they can't even formulate a sentence they know what a Nebir hearing is. In fact, I remember the first time I had to figure out what a Nebir hearing. A Nebir hearing is a hearing about bail, where your bail money came from, to make sure that it's legitimate. It's not coming from drug, drug sales or gun sales or you're not stealing other people's money for, for bail money. That's what a Nebir hearing. I remember the first time one of these folks, repeat offenders, told me I want a Nebir hearing. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I had to look it up myself. The law was made for law breakers. And even that is true of in human terms, right? How many of you can describe for me the difference between 
a retail theft that is a misdemeanor and a retail theft that is a felony. You can't. How many of you go into stores and pay for your goods because you know the ABCs of Pennsylvania retail law? Right? No. What we have is we have God's law written on our hearts and that enables us to go into a store and buy stuff and pay for it. It's not because of my knowledge of the law that says, oh, Isaac, you shouldn't steal. It's not because of my knowledge of Pennsylvania law about retail theft that prevents me from going in to, to, to say, you know, don't, don't steal. Okay, the law was made for law breakers. Now think about this. This principle that, that the law is made for lawbreakers is not only true of human law, it's true of God's law, right? The law was made for lawbreakers. And yet all throughout today in our Old Testament readings, Proverbs 8, where God's law is personified as a woman standing on a hill, standing at the city gates, come listening to me, right? Listen to my understanding, gain understanding, gain wisdom. It's more precious than rubies. Where we read Psalm 19, Kurt, I thought of you, right? Because you love Psalm 19. God's law is make, makes, you know, make, revives the soul, delights the inner inward being. God beckons us to know his law. He has revealed his law to all of us. And yet the law was created for unrighteous people, sinners. What does that tell us? about us what is God trying to say about us about our nature right God's trying to tell us you we are depraved sinful people okay if we had a choice uh, we would turn away from God's law and never want to know it but the reason he beckons us and beckons us and cries out to us know the law is because he wants us to know how much in sin we are, but also how much in need of a savior we we are uh, we we have. So, friends, how do we use the law? I don't think our church here. I don't think we use the law unlawfully. Okay, but many of the people that you encounter here in Upper Darby at 69th Station. They come from churches and they come from backgrounds where the law is used unlawfully, right? If you've ever come across a person that says, well, my church teaches I need a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's using the law unlawfully because basically they're saying, well, salvation is not enough. You need to do something else to get more saved, really saved by the Holy Spirit, right? You come across a lot. You come across that a lot here. Someone comes up to you and says, well, my church teaches that new birth and salvation are really different. That's basically using the law unlawfully. Saying it's not enough to be born again. You need to do more. Whatever more is to be saved, truly saved. Even reformed churches. Right? Even Reformed churches with pastors that come from that seminary, that read those books, 
teach that there is initial salvation by faith, but final salvation that accords with works. And they had a whole trial that denomination did, and basically they couldn't settle the question. Maybe more applicable for us, are we using the law lawfully? Of course, we must not misunderstand this text. We must not misunderstand this text and think, well, God, it's better for us to just avoid God's law altogether, right? God's law is good. It's precious. All the readings that we've done today make it abundantly clear that not only is it precious, we need to treat it as precious. It needs to be part of our lives. But one of the ways we use the law lawfully is, if it's precious to us, it shows us who we really are. And it shows us our desperate need for a Savior. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm glad Mark went to Galatians. Um, because I'm going to Galatians too. For our, uh, when, you, when you did the assurance of pardon. Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. That's all of us. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit through, not works of the law anymore, but through faith, faith in Christ. So friends, how are we using the law? How are you using the law? I think a lot of times the first question is, is the law even around us? Right? God's law. Is that even a part of our lives? Right? Or are we avoiding it altogether? Because if we're avoiding it altogether, we are not in front of that mirror saying, this is who I really am in front of God. And this is really who I depend on for my salvation, which is Christ who died on the cross for me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your law. We thank you for your words. Um... Not only do they give us wisdom, not only do they give us understanding in a general sense, but uh, specifically, it, it really shows us who we are before you um, as sinners, as folks who uh, maybe we've not committed acts, but certainly people who are fallen because we, we think and we have desires and, and we have things internally uh, that break your law. But Father, thank you for also sending your Son in that we are no longer a curse. Thank you for sending your Son to redeem us from the curse by becoming cursed for us, by dying on the cross, by taking the penalty of our sins, and by now clothing us with his righteousness. Lord, it was so great that before the sermon, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, you said that you came to fulfill every jot and tittle of the law. Thank you for doing that. And thank you now for imputing that righteousness that you have to us, that we might be justified by faith. Father, uh, grant us 
grace grant us ability uh, to to be more and more in tune to uh, walk more and more closely with you through your law each day of our lives we pray this in jesus name amen